So good to see you all. God bless everyone. God bless you all. Um, God has been good, and um, I wanted to share some things with you very passionately this morning about what God has placed on my heart. Um, I um, will be talking today about why I am a person of faith, and I've called it a scientist's story, so for, many, for some of you who might not know me, I am a professor emeritus at the University of Montreal in the Department of Chemical Engineering. And so science and scientific research has really been part of my life, and I've spoken on it here at times to time. But today I wanted to come back to it, and um, I had the opportunity in February to speak in an event at McGill University called Relevant McGill. So some parts of that talk will be from there. I also had the opportunity in April um, to sit on a panel with the director of the uh, Vatican Observatory, who is a Jesuit priest, and addressing aspects, again, of science and faith. And probably even most importantly, as a community, um, at Sandra Hoffman's funeral, which was at the end of July, there were some aspects there related to creation and God's love that I also wanted to come back to. And Roy, we are, our hearts are with you and your family. Um, I wanted to start, actually, I have a bunch of pictures. They'll come a bit later, but there is one picture I did want to show, and it is a picture of Lake Huron. It's the very first picture on the deck. And so if that could come up here. Um, I'm not sure how well you can make this out, but there is a beach here. I'm born and raised in Sarnia, Ontario. Um, we were about uh, five minutes from the lake, and so if they had five minutes before supper, my sister and I would run down and jump in the lake and still be able to get back home in time for supper. But um, if you look here at the right-hand side, you can see where the lake meets the sky. And I remember at about the age of nine or 10, sitting on the side of this lake, and it just seemed to me just so clear, there must be a God. Just this, my eyes going out, the seeing no end to it, the sense that there's something there beyond myself, and maybe even this idea of infinity. Infinity, many of you may not know, but there's a symbol that infinity, it's like an eight that's resting on its side. That's the infinity symbol. Uh, the infinity symbol was actually developed by a monk called Wallace in the 1600s, and he introduced the infinity symbol to mathematics. It's interesting because without infinity, there's a whole body of mathematics that just would not function. What that actually says to us is that infinity is embedded in this natural world that we live in. Infinity is embedded in everything that is related to this natural world, including what we see around us and including ourselves. Um, in my own experience as a research scientist, one of the things I've noticed related, again, to infinity is that it, when you're doing scientific research, what's really interesting is that you do investigation, you try to understand, you open one door, and what you always find is that there are five doors behind that. You open another door, and there's another five behind that. You open this, and there's another. There is literally no end to it. Um, one of the things, and then becoming a Christian and understanding how infinity is embedded in who we are as creatures of God, even when I would have my graduate students start on their uh, research, this concept of infinity would feed into a challenge that I would give them. I would say, here's the work you need to do, here's a PhD project for you, for example. 
and they would have done all the research. We would have come together. They're at the very beginning. This is a great idea. We're going to go and try and investigate this. But I would always challenge them. And I would say, inside this project, if you keep your eyes open, you're going to find something more important than anything we're talking about today, but something completely unexpected. So it's this beautiful idea of infinity being in and being all around us. With people even and colleagues, I remember having discussions in the faculty room, and um, I asked some of my fellow colleagues, have you ever had the feeling that you've touched infinity, you've touched things that are beyond you, and they all actually said yes. What's really interesting is that this is all scripture. If we go to Psalm 19, verses 1 to 4, and call that up now, Psalm 19, verses 1 to 4 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the word of his hands, day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. God's creation is vast infinite and wondrous, and it's meant to draw us to him. God, in this creation, has created a world, each and every one of us, when you take a simple walk in nature, God is calling out to you. There's meant to be something there that you see that is beyond yourself. It might be a newborn child. It might be a garden. It might be a walk in the woods. It might be a walk in nature. But God is there, and he's waiting, and he's drawing us. And this is scriptural. What I wanted to show you today, normally when we talk about Psalm 19, and the heavens declare the glory of God, you go into a whole bunch of pictures about the universe, and you show slides of, of, of the galaxies, and you show slides of planets, which is beautiful, which is wonderful, right? I want to do actually the exact opposite with you this morning. Rather than looking through a telescope, I want us to look through a microscope. So um, the work I do is I am a polymer scientist, polymers or macromolecules are very large molecules. So H2O, two hydrogens and an oxygen, is a small molecule. Imagine a thousand or a million of those all strung together and linked together, and you have something called a macromolecule. So I'm a macromolecular scientist, and macromolecules have very, very, very special properties. In fact, it's everywhere. Trees are almost all macromolecules. You are mostly composed of macromolecules. <laughs> Skin, DNA is a macromolecule. Um, plastics are macromolecules. There are polymer, we call them polymers, we call them macromolecules. So what I want to show you here is I want to show you some pictures of polymer or macromolecular crystals. And these have all been observed on the microscope, so they are highly magnified. But I want you to see, and first of all, I want to do a shout out to a very dear friend of mine, Professor Paul Smith from ETH Zurich. These, uh, these shots are from his laboratory and have been done by his students. So I want you, we're going to call up these pictures. I'm going to call them through one at a time. Just allow yourself to just be, enjoy the complexity, the symmetry, and what I believe is stunning beauty. So let's start with the first one. Polymer crystals, they tend to fold and they form these lamella and they form these amazing shapes. 
and they grow in like spherical structures. But some of these things we understand, other things we don't understand at all. But you just see here this beautiful complexity and symmetry. Next. 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 You see it? And the last one. Psalm 19. They pour out speech night after night. They reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. This is actually art also, kind of meeting science, if you maybe get that as well. So beautiful. And this is all part of God's creation, and these are just polymer crystals of being God's laws, some of which we understand, some of which we understand nothing about. <clears throat> so in my, um, as part of my story, and as part of being a scientist, I was trying to think back of what are some of the things that I've learned the most in what I've done. And I think we're all called, whatever we're doing, to somehow see God in what we've done. And I, I, I would say there are two things that really come out to me. One is, as a scientist, you are kind of embedded with this idea. There is this deep, deep respect for the concept of truth, what is true and desiring what is true, and for that to be true, and for that to be revealed. But exactly combined with that, as a scientist, you are actually hit by the sense of how little you actually know. How little you actually know. So let's look at the first one, the concept of truth. <clears throat> This particular scripture I'm not going to put up. It's from Job 38, verses 1 to 2. It's not going to come up here, but I'm going to read it out to you. Job, at the end of his experience, God addresses Job. And in, verse, in chapter 38, verses 1 to 2, the Lord speaks to Job. And 1 to 2 says the following, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said this, he said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? It's something that we need to take to heart as people of Christ, okay, as well. Our call is to love and to love with our hearts and to love also with all our minds. And what does that look like? St. Augustine, um, who is a famous thinker of the church from, the, three, uh, from, from the, the early, early, early church, has famously said that all truth is God's truth. And what that means is, is that we are going to be getting truth from Scripture, and we are going to be getting truth also as we learn something about nature, and all these truths are God's truths, and all these truths are meant to come together, and that what we actually follow as people of faith is as Beautiful integration of all of truth. All of truth is God's truth. One of the founders of science, Sir Francis Bacon, said, God has, in fact, written two books, not just one. Of course, we are all familiar with the first book he wrote, namely Scripture, but he has written a second book called Creation. And so all truth is God's truth is this idea that there's not a bubble over here or this over here or we have our scripture here and then we have some other. It's all part integrated 
It's all God's truth. And we don't live in different silos and choose our sources of truth. All truth is God's truth. And it comes together in one integrated story. The second idea and the second thing that I wanted to share with you is this idea of how little we know. So that's the idea of being convicted of this concept of truth, but being convic- also seeing how little we actually know. So many of you might not know, but science actually has limits. Well, it's actually wrong to say that science has limits. The human mind, as it perceives nature, has limits. I mean, you could say there's man's science and God's science. There are things that we're going to be able to uncover, but there, will, there are, and this is well established, there will always be things that are beyond the capacity in science of the way this world is, beyond our capacity to understand. So when I um, was teaching um, and at the university, I, there were two courses that I taught. One was organic chemistry. Some people are going to leave the room right away, so I'm very sorry about that. <laughs> and another course, and about everybody's going to leave the room, was a course called thermodynamics. So um, these are heavy courses with a lot of heavy content. And uh, what I would do is throughout the uh, 30 plus years when I was teaching is, um, you know, I could kind of see the students' eyes like, and they're getting loaded down with all the And almost every class I would ever teach, we would stop for what I would call, I teach in French, so on va prendre un beau moment ensemble. We're going to take a beautiful moment together now. So all of a sudden, their eyes brighten up, they go down, and I would share something about my life, about how that, my life, and, and, and also my practice of science, and how it fit in a little bit with also with what we were actually doing, but I would tell stories, basically. Interestingly, uh, you know, I've talked to some students after 20 years, all they remember from some of my classes were the stories. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I, I think it's a good thing, I'm not entirely sure, but we would do a bon maman ensemble. And in my organic chemistry course, one of the bon maman that we would take together is um, something where we would look at something called, uh, first maybe I'll start with the thermodynamics course. So in thermodynamics, very heavy in math, but we would stop and I would say, let's take that bon maman. And I would say, you know what? The first law of thermodynamics says that energy can be neither created nor destroyed. This is not a research problem. This is just a law. That means we can only change the form of energy from one form into another. We take it from James Bay, that rushing water, and we take it and we put it through generators and turbines and we create electricity, but we're just converting that from one form. We can't create energy. And I would look at them and I would say, you know what? We cannot create energy and it is not a research problem. And I said, and you're going to want to have to think about that. And we would leave it with that. And we would take that bon maman. And the, many of the students would come up after me and want to talk about that. Science has limits. Our capacity of human mind to understand science has limits. There was another aspect in the organic chemistry class, something called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So what that means is, I don't know how many of you remember from a basic science course, something called orbitals, right? So orbitals are in atoms, you know, and electrons, right, are in orbitals. I don't know if you remember this from basic science. They're in orbitals, right? The Heisenberg uncertainty principle says that when entities get very, very small, like an electron, we can fix their position. And if we fix their position, we can't know their speed. And if we fix their speed, we can't know their position. So what that means is that in an orbital, we only know that there's about a 95% probability that the electrons are in there, and we don't know exactly where they are at any given time. And that's not a research problem. That is a foundation, I'm sorry again, this word here, it's a foundation of quantum mechanics. It's a foundation, a foundation of quantum mechanics. So what it's saying, what these things are saying, and what we often don't understand, and I think sometimes even scientists in science we can forget, 
is that the capacity of the human mind to understand this world, there's something about this world that is beyond us, beyond the human mind and beyond the capacity of the human mind to grasp. So Werner Heisenberg, who developed and won the Nobel Prize for the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle, makes this quote. Not only is the universe stranger than we think, it is stranger than we can think. What we observe is not nature itself, but nature exposed to our method of questioning. We don't actually even observe nature as it is. It's so far beyond us, we're only observing nature to the extent that our human minds allow us to interact with what is around us. I mean, it is a phenomenal statement. I mean, that statement belongs in a church. There's stuff that's beyond us. And one of the most famous statements of Werner Heisenberg is this, and I'm saying this because in many, many churches, one of the main reasons that young people, and it's one of the reasons I'm giving this with all my heart this morning, is one of the main reasons young people and young adults are leaving church is because they see a perceived conflict between science and faith. They see a perceived conflict with some parts of truth and that seem to be not part of the truth that I'm taught at church and that there must be a contradiction there. There is no conflict between science and faith. And I want to tell you, if you're a young adult or a young person listening to this online, this church, Westview Bible Church, we are, we will not, we are, re we are not ready to have one of you leave for that reason. We are going to come around you and protect you and encourage you. We are going to encourage you to ask your questions. Questions. Questions will allow you to go deeper into who your God is. So the second quote of Werner Eisenberg is this. The first gulp from the glass of the natural sciences will turn you into an atheist. Well, you know, a lot of people say that. Science is going to tell us everything. Science is going to explain everything in the world. Why do we need God anymore? That's a very common philosophical view today. The first gulp, you know, your first experience from the glass of the natural sciences will turn you into an atheist. But at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. At the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. And for any of you who have been searching in this area, I want you to know that God is waiting for you. God's waiting for all of us. God is waiting for you. It's up to us to open the door and see. So this idea that we live in a world that is beyond our understanding is beautifully described in Job 38, verses 4 to 7, which is going to go up on the screen now. This particular part, again, this is God speaking to Job, is some of the most beautiful prose and poetry, but it will set you into the mind of who God actually is. Job 38, verses 4 to 7. Where were you? This is God speaking about the limits of our ability to understand the world that we live in. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. It's almost like comical, like you, like you should be laughing here. This is God speaking. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstones? while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. And on, a little bit later on in Job 38, verses 16 to 20, it becomes direct. Have, God is saying to Job, have you journeyed to the springs of the sea? To the beginnings of everything? Have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? 
Do we understand, really, life and death? Of course not. Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light, and where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwelling? Nature in its fullness is ultimately beyond our ability to understand. There's another very interesting part of what we see about this world that we live in. And this world, nature and science, obviously has shown this over the years, is that laws are obeyed. Like you saw those polymer crystals, right? Like they were obeying like certain laws, forming lamella, growing in spherical shapes outwardly. Like they obey laws, everything. Like water boils at 100 degrees C. The world we live in obeys certain laws. One of the principal atheistic philosophers, a fellow by the name of Antony Flew, wrote a book, and it's called There Is No God, and then he crosses out the no, and it's There Is a God. And he ended up changing his mind about whether God exists or not, and it was actually over this. And he said the following, the leaders of science over the last hundred years, along with some of today's most influential scientists, have built a philosophically compelling vision of a rational universe that sprang from a divine mind. A rational universe that sprang from a divine mind. This, my friends, is also scriptural. If we go to Proverbs 8 now, verses 22 to 23. Proverbs 8, if you have a chance to read this, is an amazing chapter. It is called the I Wisdom Chapter. Wisdom is like personified, like a person. It says, I, wisdom, and then it explains, it goes on. Here, it's talking about this. The Lord brought me wisdom forth as the first of his works. Before his deeds of old, I was formed long ago, at the very beginning when the world came to be. At the very beginning. And as people, and as people who are reading this, if you were to read scriptural commentary about this, it's not just wisdom. Don't separate out wisdom in your mind. Wisdom is actually at the beginning of all of creation present in the triune God. Wisdom is there, formed at the very beginning before all of creation. And if you go on in Proverbs 8, verses 27 to 31... I, wisdom, was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I, wisdom, was constantly at his side, the triune God, I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. These scriptures are telling us that wisdom saturates creation. God's mind saturates everything that has been made. And God has infused all of creation with his mind. In fact, you can actually say that creation is actually a thought of God. And we are a thought of God. Tish, Harrison, Warren, Kathy, passed, my wife passed this on to me, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. She's an Anglican priest. And she has this op-ed about how each of us, each life, we're all a thought of God. We are actually... She was saying a poem. We are a poem of God. These poems have beautiful parts and tragic parts, right? Like this is part of life. But God 
has thought and loved and prepared each of us. And his thought and his mind infuses everything, creation and us. You know, for me, when I was growing up, like I, I gave you that experience at the age of 10, you know, when I said, oh, there must be a God. I only really started, I would say, having a really close personal relationship with God at about the age of 18. And there, you know, I know a lot of people have said, gee, Basil, I'd be really interested to know at the age of 18 what, you know, what deep thought kind of brought you because you seem like you're a thinker, right? You know, like what deep thought brought you to this knowledge of God? And, and I always, I've said that before and I've shared it here from, from the pulpit. Well, it was just really because there was this girl I wanted to go out with when I was 18 and it was really all messed up. And I was at the, you know, I just said, God, you got to take care of this. And I just threw myself before him. And, and you know what? I gave my life to the Lord. And I want to say if you're here today and if you're wondering about God, you can laugh at that, but God, no matter what your age is, I see a young fellow here with us today, no matter where you are, from the youngest to the oldest, our God will meet you where you are. Bring it to him. He will meet you where you are. Bring it to him. Bring it to him. As I went on, one of the things that really was important for me was I felt a part of a caring community youth groups, young adults, and I just felt part of a caring community. And I began to understand this idea as I was a person of faith that I could live for something more than just living for myself. Along this way, I met the love of my life, Kathy, two beautiful children, and God has led us together to support and to help each other through, through, through things. There are things that happen to us that are not always easy. And God's promise to us is not to take all of these things away and make them disappear. He is to show us a way through. He is giving us a way through it. And this I began to understand. When I was um, starting off my PhD, um, I worked for a year and a half, and I had, at the end of, I have to tell you that I... After about a year in my PhD, I had uncovered something which would have turned my whole field upside down. It was a phenomenal discovery. I then spent another year and a half trying to reproduce it, and I never could. Two and a half years into a PhD, I still have to meet a student who's been two and a half years into a PhD and has like absolutely nothing to show for it. I mean, there's a few of us around. But I... I was at the end of myself. I said, like, I'm not made for this. This isn't for me. And, uh, you know, I've shared this story at the church here before, but if you haven't said it again, it's so powerful, I'll talk about it again. So I said, like, what do you do? You're a young kid. You're 500 miles away from home. You hit this first major roadblock in your life. What do you do? You call your mom. So, you know, so I called mom, and uh, mom wasn't going to solve the physics of, uh, you know, lignin macromolecules, but, um, you know, she listened to me. Listen, listen, listen. And at the very end, she just said, I said, I'm not made out for this. I think I have to stop. I have to quit. It's no good. Like, she said, Basil, she said, she just looked at me. I was a young Christian. She is, had been a person of faith and brought me to Christ, actually. She prayed with me at the age of 18. Can you imagine? My mom sat on the side of my bed at the age of 18 led me to Christ. You know, it was an amazing story. Anyhow, here I was a few years later doing a PhD. Uh, I guess I would have been around 23 at this time or so. And she just said, Basil, she said, who are you doing this for? Who are you doing this for? And I told her, I said, you know what? I've completely forgotten about that. And I went on my knees. I gave that back to God. I gave it back to him. And I learned something that my life has purpose. I have a God who cares for me. I have people around me who love me, but also this is not just about me and my ego. I am giving this to the advancement, the further the kingdom of God on this earth, and I gave him my life. Not my life, which I had given to him before. I gave him my career, my scientific hopes, my desires. All of us are called to do this. Place it in his hands. And finally, just a couple other little stories as I conclude here. 
my students. You know, when I I was thinking of when I was thinking about possibly going to the university and being a professor at the university, I look back on my PhD experience. And uh, although a lot of professors really treat their students well, there had been a few in the experience that I had had that didn't and were basically just using people to advance their own world careers, world reputations, and it turned me off totally. And yet I was looking and I really felt nudged. I said, you know, Basil, like it, there seems to be giftings and passion for you to do this. And then I realized, as I was reading my scripture, the Lord was saying, I can show you another way to do this. Just because other people did this this way doesn't mean you have to do it. And not only that, we're actually called not to just come out into some safe bubble, but also, although I was passionate about it and I loved it, but also to go into places and to go out into this world and to show his love. And so for me, one of the things that really was transformative was to be able to look at the students who are in my research group, and this is where Christian teaching really helped, is to understand that each and every one of them was made in the image of God. Made in the image of God. If you're with people and in your families and in the places where you work, Meditate on the people around you as being made in the image of God. It will transform. You cannot use people for your own purposes. And forgiveness. God is a God who forgives. We are going to stumble. We are going to sin. We are going to get in the way. And this is a God who forgives us. And I remember in some cases when I was extremely busy in my career at times. It was an eight-month period, nine-month period, and I was so busy, I went to some of my students and I asked for their forgiveness. I said, I feel like I've neglected you during this period. Please, please, please forgive me. But we are called as people of faith to let our egos go down and to look to God to lead us for his truth. In my own case, um, if you look at Genesis, soon after it says that we're made in the image of God, it says that we're called to tend for creation. So in my own work in the 19, in, I actually, in the mid-1990s, I transformed my entire group into a group with an environmental bent. So rather than plastics from petroleum, we became specialists on how to make plastics from plants and also plastic recycling. And, and looking at aspects like this, carrying the earth. These are, these are, this was teaching that came to us from Scripture. You are also, we're meant to look and bring God's teaching into what you're doing and seeing and also bringing values. And the last thing I wanted to say here is that science by itself needs faith. Science by itself We'll come up with discoveries, but where are the values that are going to tell us how to use that information? Whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's nuclear technology, values. Where are those values? Our values are going to come as people of faith. Values. The values, the values of Scripture, the values that, that the Lord has given us and outlined in his Scripture. And the last verse I want to leave with you is in Ephesians 3, verses 17 to 19. I'm going to read this out to you. Ephesians 3, 17 to 19. As people of faith, we are called to love the Lord with all our minds and with all our heart. When you have come to know Christ, you have been called into a gospel of love. Deep, deep, deep love. And I, today I'm talking about God's nature and what he's created, but God's nature is also his love. It all comes together. It's all the same. And in Ephesians 3, verses 17 to 19, it says the following, and I pray that you 
being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You know, as I was looking at the scripture and why I wanted to leave you here is look at the way love is described here. How wide and long and high and deep. It's just like the way Job was talking about what's been created. God's love is part of who God is. It's as vast as his creation. In fact, his love is beyond, actually, all our understanding. If science is beyond our understanding, his love is even. The true extent of God's love, although we experience it, goes even beyond what we can even understand. So that what actually happens here and the thought that I want to leave you with and the inspiration that I would like to leave you with is this. Science has advanced incrementally, right? We take on a little bit. We learn a little bit more. Where we were 100 years ago is very different from where we are today. There's an incremental advancement. And the reason is it's just it's the limits of the human mind. We take on a bit at a time. We take on a bit at a time. We take... I believe that God's love, because this is all God, this is all part of it, I believe God's love is the same. We put ourselves as limits to God's love, but slowly God is making us and leading us into a way of love. The way we love today is different from the way people loved a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago, and God is taking his church with our egos, with our sin. He is causing us to grow in this love and to bring this love, which has no beginning, no end to it. It is immense. And he has called us to bring about his kingdom on this earth. Love our God with all our hearts and with all our minds. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for all that you are. You are high, high and lifted up. We just love you, oh God. We pray, and I pray for each and everyone here, oh God. I pray that you would touch hearts. I pray that you would touch minds. I pray for anyone here who's been questioning, Lord, that you would speak to them deeply, oh God. For others who just need to know more, Lord, that you are present, that you are waiting, that you are there everywhere. Lord, speak to each one who is here. Lord, I ask for your Holy Spirit to come down on this place in mighty power, in mighty power, O oh Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Basil. We'll now enter into a time of Q&A. For those that are on Zoom, you can... Text your questions on the number above. For those that are present here, you can either text your question or, if you like, you just raise your hand and someone with a mic will come to, uh, to give you the mic so that you can ask your question in person. So are, are there any questions in the room? Hi, Basil. It's Adel. I know I'm a bit short, so I'll stand up. <laughs> um, first of all, I'm so thankful that you were a blessing to um, Christ-following science students at your university. Um, because it's back to school, um, I'd like to know what is your best encouragement for students who know the Lord, who are going back to school, and especially in institutes of higher learning where their faith will not be the coolest thing to show off on campus and life is just tough. And I say this as a recent master's graduate as well. So what's your encouragement to Christian students among our Westview family? Um, how to go into school standing firm in who we are in the Lord and navigating 
those tough waters. So that's part it, one of my question. Is that Adel? It is. Yeah, it's very bright lights here. Hi, Adel. <laughs> um, I'm not sure I got all of it, but um, how do we bring the Lord into the places? For the students that are uh, starting up now yeah. in higher learning, how, yeah. what words of encouragement can you give? Yes, what right. encouragement, not how to show off God, right. but what right. encouragement right. 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 can um, you give? For, uh, I mean, I would really encourage all the students who started. So I, I would say that you're starting on an area of question. And I think that these are things that we need to encourage. We can't, if we don't encourage students to question, for example, and I think going, going to higher education or, or just you know, whatever it is that is causing you, whether it's higher education or not, whatever is pushing you to ask questions is going to make you stronger in the faith. But there has often been a kind of a pushback of a fear about that. And I think that we have to be, we have to be sure that, you know, we allow people to ground their faith, that these questions be asked. Now, I think um, to someone who is just going in to, um, um, to start as a student at university, um, I want them to know you would be actually surprised how many people of faith are there. So, and I'm going to give you an example, Adel. I, um, um, I don't know if Andy is here, but, um, and first of all, I think I have to really thank all of you at Westview because, and Nita, if you're here too, you were part of that. Like, I was asked to give a module in science and faith, and that started here at Westview, and then I was asked to preach, and, and you got me started on this, and Andy Smits actually who's with Power to Change, asked me to start giving public lectures. And so I've given public lectures in English and French on faith and science at Laval, at the University of Montreal, at McGill, at Concordia, at many different universities. And here is the thing. The first time when I was asked to give a talk at the university on science and faith, a public lecture, was in a building on the campus of the University of Montreal where there are at least... 10 faculty from my own department. And I remember I was asked to do this, but I was kind of used to kind of living, you know, I'm a scientist, yeah, I believe these things, I have, you know, but kind of like, you know, we don't have to put these ideas out there too much, right? Felt very safe. And then when I was, as the date was approaching, I was going, what am I doing here? What are you doing, Basil? Like, how could you, you know, how could you, you know, what have you got yourself into? So I was imagining, you know, all kinds of opposition, blah, blah, blah. And what was actually amazing was, is that as I went and I gave that talk, there were two effects. The first effect was the students came up to me and they said, we never talk about faith as it relates to, like, science, for example. We don't have that discussion. And we absolutely need to have that discussion. So I was going, wow. And then the second thing is, is that some of my own students came up to me and said, hey, Basil, this is so cool. I think I'm going to come. And so I started a whole discussion with students in my own research group. And then afterwards, as I gave more of these, professors started to come out and talk to me. And so we actually, um, when I would go to a conference now, these people just came up because we spoke up, because we were there. So I would say, um, you know, um, like there, 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 there are, you know, at least 50% of scientists, you wouldn't, might, you wouldn't believe that, but 50% of scientists believe in a, 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 a higher power, or something that you can pray to, someone you can pray to, 50%. So um, I would say to not be too fearful about this, but I would also really encourage um, that they be involved with the Christian group as well. Because, you know, uh, we can't do this alone. So I talked a little bit about the role of a caring community for me. Caring community is, is absolutely key. Thanks. Thank you, you. Thank you answered my second question without me asking it. <laughs> Thank you, Basil. Yeah, uh, I'd like to chime in on that as well, but are there any other questions for any, from anybody? Um, 
just one thing I'd like to, to add to that, Basil, is um, as we all know, one of the uh, sharpest minds uh, of our generation um, today uh, has been Tim Keller. And uh, he had his, they had this, his memorial service uh, just last week, I believe. One of the things that they were commenting on Tim Keller was uh, of all the um, eulogies and accolades that they were giving to Tim, it was practically all not on his gifting and his skill set, but on his character. And one of the things that was brought out was the fact that when he engaged with people, he came with a posture of curiosity, not as one who had all the answers, not as one with an air of confidence or arrogance, but someone who was genuinely interested in what others had to say, what others believed, what other uh, uh, aspects were coming forth. And, and I think uh, a word of encouragement that I would give to students is there tends to be this dichotomy between faith and science, that they are worlds apart and never the twain shall meet. But in fact, we have the opportunity to bring together that there can be a conversation, a healthy conversation, one where we also enter into the conversation with curiosity and humility to engage and connect with others. Any other questions? And I would say to that too, Evange, that <clears throat> I think with Tim Keller, that openness was also driven by a deep heart for the people, a deep, deep heart for people, a deep love for people, a deep care for people. Like, you know, we're not out there to win debates. Really? If you're out there to win a debate, you probably should not be doing this. Don't do that. We are called to love with our mind and our heart. So, you know, as Christians, we actually have to think, you know, if you love God with your heart, all your heart, but you're not loving him with your mind, it can actually take you to some very strange places. But if you love the God with your mind and you abandon the idea of the heart, there is going to be a harshness in that that is going to repel people, not draw them to you. So we are called to love with our heart and our mind. I think Absolutely. Keller did that. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Basil.